Grumpy Economist podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Grumpy Economist is John Cochran, the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. And John, we'll build this week off of a piece you just had the other day in the Wall Street Journal entitled, Get Ready for the Careful Economy. This is as we move towards reopening in the wake of COVID-19. And I guess we should probably start by stipulating this reopening is not quite, we just put the key back in the ignition. This is more like the, the car turns on, but we're so low on gas that we're driving around with the air conditioner turned off and then we're, we're coasting where we can. <laughs> so in other words, we're kind of going to be muddling through for a while. And a lot of people are focused on the social dimensions of that. But you, befitting your station, are thinking a lot about the economic consequences. And you say in this piece, the big casualty here is economic efficiency. So walk us through what that means in practice, what some of the potential consequences are of that. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the bigger picture is, as I'm trying to peer through the muck, uh, you know, forecasting the future is hard, especially about the future. Um, but uh, that is the question, you know, what is the fall going to look like economically? Um, and, uh, you know, how fast is the economy going to come back? And in part, you know, I'm always a contrarian. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of macroeconomists are like a two-year-old with a hammer to which everything looks like a nail and, and they're ready for more fiscal stimulus and lack of demand. Um, but I, 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 I don't see that, 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 that's the only story they've got going. Um, I think there's a serious issue on the, let's call it, supply end of the economy, even even if uh, we can't get the demand going again, even if people do want to spend money. And that's uh, until we get uh, a technological bureaucratic solution, which takes both, until we can have widespread cheap testing um, and doing something useful with the results, or until we have a vaccine. And uh, we're going to be trundling along with this virus uh, at you know, hopefully something like current levels, maybe hot spots coming out, hot spots getting tamped down. So let's just put together, you know, six months at least of the virus is still there. And, you know, yesterday it was meatpacking plants. Tomorrow it'll be something else. Uh, some town will have a, you know, a party and then a bunch of people get it. Uh, and uh, people are scared of going to airlines. I'm just trying to paint a picture for you, which I'm going on a little bit. But, uh, you know, let's think together about what's it like to run an economy where the legal restrictions are 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 lessened. There's a lot of uh, um, government telling you that you have to clean stuff up and social distance and so forth. But there's also a lot of common sense. Um now that that's not an economy running at full steam, um, and people forget about the supply end. The, the American economy is built on really great efficiency. So you know the obvious story: if a restaurant, if every restaurant has to have, uh, can only use every other seat, well, then they can only get half as much revenue, which means they got to pay lower wages or lower rents, or you know where's that come or double the prices. Uh, if airlines have to leave the middle seats empty? Well, uh, airplane airfares have to go up. There's only so long that they can afford to keep subsidizing your air travel. Uh, if every business has to hire people to uh, uh, take temperatures on the way in and make sure you're six feet apart and only let certain number of people in and wipe down in between customers, that's all expensive stuff. It's all inefficient stuff. So 
um, what does that economy look like? Uh, it's just, it's not roaring along in terms of GDP, in terms of incomes, in terms of its ability to deliver uh, lots of stuff at low prices and high wages for workers. It's just not there. Now, now there can be lots of employment if we can convince people to take the jobs. We need to have a lot of people doing contact tracing and taking temperatures and cleaning up and so forth. Um, so it's not necessarily lack of employment, but it's certainly not uh, not humming along because of that. It, it, it's a supply inefficiency, and that's going to be with us as long as the virus is there. Uh, so what does that mean? That means that our our I, I hope for. Uh, I think it was Austin Gouldby called it a checkmark recovery, <laughs> uh, a, a, a quick V uh, that comes back, um, but then you get kind of stuck at a um, at an inefficiently low point, and you're stuck there for a while. Now, uh, I'll, I'll just keep going a little bit. Um, what it all depends on is our ability to mitigate virus transmission cheaply. So uh, just how many people do you need? Uh, how often do you have to clean up the surfaces? And therefore, how many people do you have to hire to disinfect? Um, does that matter at all? Maybe you don't have to hire anybody to disinfect. Uh, is it really uh, how, how many people can you put in a restaurant? Is an outdoor patio okay? And an indoor patio, or not. There's all these, all these these decisions about how do you run things efficiently without spreading the virus that we all have to learn. And so I think there's hope. It's a it's a check plus, <laughs> a check mark. You can see right now businesses are overdoing it. Um, there, everybody has to wear masks, and we wipe down every ten minutes and so forth. So we all have to kind both. We have to learn and get the confidence uh, to do what's important. Now. Now, testing has its place. Um, you know, the best way to do it is, is to know who's got the disease and, and keep them out. <laughs> so uh, at, as testing comes in, if it does, um, or we start using the kind of web apps and temperature that the Chinese have been using for six months, uh, we can we can also make things safer by, by having a better idea of not too many people around have it. So this inefficiency, like all inefficiencies, is one that if we can learn uh, over time, things will get better and, and get better quickly. Uh, last thought before I stop the monologue here. Of course, the danger is regulations. There's already people who want to put in lots of regulations about exactly what businesses have to do. Well, that codifies today's wisdom, maybe even appropriate to what we know today, um, may be appropriate to how prevalent the virus is today, but that will instantly not be valid a month and a half from now. When we learn what does spread it and what doesn't spread it, when we learn what measures are effective and what measures aren't effective, when we have some more testing, when we know uh, which communities don't have any people in it and, and so forth. Okay, so end of monologue. Uh, that's where I think where we're heading. <laughs> okay, let me, um, let me ask you, there's been a lot of talk recently, well, really, I guess since this started, about uh, disaggregating the strategy by geography. In, in other words, different parts of the country are going to have different imperatives based on their circumstances. Uh, but I want to ask you about disaggregating by demographics. So, for instance, we have different sets of considerations around school-age children, around college students, around seniors, people in retirement homes, maybe even around low-income communities. Now that the initial shockwave is kind of hopefully behind us, 
Uh, how fine-grained do we need to get in constructing our responses? Do we need to think about different approaches for different settings? Yeah, so um, I'll back up on this question with the usual, who's this we boss? Uh, <laughs> Good point. Uh, well, it's a point people keep forgetting. Um, uh, even normal people can come up with really good, clever ideas that would work well. But are the bureaucratic capacity of the U.S. public health system to do anything even faintly sensible is really the limit here, not clever ideas. Um, but that said, uh, so so I, I just want to I want to tamper our enthusiasm for clever ideas with the realities. Uh, you know, it, it's been uh, six months now, and we still don't have basic uh, contact tracing. And, you know, states are just now thinking about hiring people to con trace contacts. Gee, that would have been a good idea to start six months ago. Um, but, yes, so uh, what we know now is that the biggest danger is um, – I think we know two very important things. The biggest danger is like nursing homes. Uh, people who are, are older are almost all the fatalities here. So um, isolating and being very careful about that will uh, at least keep the spread of this disease to people who are more... It's still not a pleasant disease, and if you don't die from it, uh, but certainly we need to protect them. And there's a big a second big point I want to emphasize that I've learned about this, the, the importance of the super spreading events. Um, I think this is something that gives me great hope. Um, this disease, uh, the, the, the latest on the medical, is it's really unusual in how much of its spread comes from a few concentrated super spreading events. You know, a party where 20 people get it, a choir practice where 60 people get it. Um, as opposed to just the one person gives it to two other people kind of spread of, of many other diseases. Even like the Spanish flu was, was remarkably even that way. Now, what that tells us is that um, you can take precautions. So before we even start talking about isolating all that, but you can take precautions. So if you're careful about treating nursing homes, you know, let's not uh, force uh, COVID patients out of hospitals into nursing homes. Uh, let's keep them out. <laughs> you have to, if you're really careful about the nursing homes, you've, you've kind of isolated that. And if we can be super careful about the super spreader activities, um, I, I think that is going to be the key to keeping this thing tamped down. Now, the bad part of that is, is Americans love to party. And I, I was all, last week, I was I was a big enthusiast about how people are going to be common sense and you don't need a lot of regulation. And then I went out and looked at the beach on Memorial Day. And I'm going, you guys, you got to be kidding here. Um, to some extent, I think our leaders have done us a disservice by so emphasizing business lockdowns, uh, business closures as the uh, as the key, because it doesn't really spread in business. It spreads. It, it is social distance is a good word, but social distance isn't economic distance. Um, so if people go back to having parties, uh, we're in trouble. So that if we, that there's the the key, there's something easy, which is to avoid uh, to to really fix. I think we can fix things that are business and government run, like nursing homes, meatpacking plants, um, uh, jails, uh, cruise ships, aircraft carriers. <laughs> this is where it is spread. Um, I think we know how to fix that. We just got to make sure people don't on their own start having parties. 
If we can change tack just slightly for a moment, because this is an issue that keeps coming up, an economic issue that's related to this. Uh, and I think we've only maybe discussed it in passing on previous episodes of the show. But you've heard a lot of anxiety in the past few months, including from some members of Congress, about what they would call our economic dependence on other countries. And obviously, this is most acutely about China and, for instance, pharmaceuticals or medical supplies that we get from them. Time was that free market types were pretty unmoved by arguments like this. The response that you always used to hear was, this is kind of a rhetorical camouflage for protectionism. We shouldn't be taking it all that seriously. But there is a subset of people who used to be making that argument, John, who are now on precisely the opposite side of it. So for an open market enthusiast like yourself, any scenario here, any reason to, to rethink the principles around these kinds of trade relationships because certain products are too sensitive or too, certain regimes are too volatile? Uh, I'm going to be the last free marketer on the planet because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I sense, you know, there's a lot going on of see that COVID-19 proves that I was right all along. Right. Uh, our foreign policy um uh, both parties have turned to a massive China bashing, uh, which tends to be exactly those instincts. Um, I think the North Koreans have specialized in jushi, uh, self-reliance, uh, don't depend on foreign sources for anything. Well, look how it's working out for them. Um, and, and there's this instinct to we got to depend on good old America. But, you know, if you depend on America, then you have you have one very expensive source here. And if that meatpacking plant in uh, North Dakota has an outbreak, then you're just as screwed as if that one source is in China. So I, I think the, the answer is yes, you need. Um, we've learned a little bit about just in time about depending on a single source. Um, and you want to have backup plans. You want to have robustness. Um, this goes to our financing system. We got into this once again, most of America up to our necks in debt. Uh, you want to have three months of cash around just in case the economy closes down. You want to have multiple sources of supply uh, and the ability to turn to uh, other places. But that doesn't mean you want to bring it all home to one source of supply in the United States. And where we have done that, uh, where, you know, let's take examples where all our our China brashing, reshoring uh, enthusiasts have won. Uh, for example, the Jones Act of American shipping that must, uh, so all ships going from America to America must go on American flag vessels staffed by American Union uh, crews. It's an absolute disaster. <laughs> and we are not producing ships in America uh, anyway. Um, so that that it just it it leads to extremely inefficient protected it's just an excuse for protectionism so yes uh you want a robust supply chain which which actually isn't a bad idea anyway uh you always want um competitors you you want five people supplying you stuff and you want to have them competing for your business most businesses know that anyway um and, you know, you want multiple parts of China, uh, not just uh, one China. So, uh, no, I'm, you're, you're not going to convince me that we need to uh, we need to go to forcing everything to to, to raise the drawbridges and make everything at home. Uh, you know, also just uh, the astounding cost of it. Um, buy anything, and it's still made in China, and it would cost three times as much if it were made in America. So, I don't know how much of your GDP you're willing to give up for this stuff. 
another debate that we're starting to see emerge, it's still kind of off to the side a bit relative to the disease itself, but with all the money that's being pushed into the system, with all the action on the Fed's behalf, you are seeing certain people start to develop an anxiety about what that means down the road, um, certain people raising concerns about the possibility of future inflation. And then you're seeing a lot of responses to them saying, you know, we went through this with you guys about 12 years ago, and everybody said that with quantitative easing, we were going to have massive inflation down the road. Didn't happen. Why should we listen to you this time? For those of us who are not monetary policy experts, how how seriously should we be taking the prospect of there being some sort of inflation problem down the road because of the, the sheer volume of money that's being pushed into the system. So I, I still think seriously, uh, just wait. I'm, 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 that, I'm that cartoon guy with the sign saying the end of the world is coming. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, uh, inflation's sovereign defaults are by their nature unpredictable. If you knew there would be inflation next year, then you would dump your government bonds and there would be inflation right now. Uh, so it's uh, I, I'm sort of reminded of my lovely real estate agent who assured us, don't worry about earthquakes. We haven't had one here since 1986. Um, you know, just just because we <laughs> haven't had an earthquake recently in California, that doesn't mean you you uh, tear up your earthquake insurance. So uh, I do think that that is a worry. Uh, I'm glad that we have uh, so far avoided it. Uh, look for, so add for our readers, uh, Grumpy is going to be turning to this issue uh, soon. Uh, a review of modern monetary theory is going to be coming up, and I'm going to be working on debt and, and in, in quite a lot of detail, should we worry about it. Uh, a couple of big reactions to your question. So QE per se is not the problem. Uh, quantitative easing, I've always thought, had no effect whatsoever. And the reason is because the Fed bought treasury debt and gave you uh, reserves, which interest-paying reserves in return. And interest-paying reserves are just another form of government debt. So they, they took your 20s and gave you two fives and a 10. And that has no impact on anything at all. The worry is the total quantity of government debt, both uh, issued by the Fed and issued by the Treasury, uh, which was going to be approaching um, uh, two years of GDP, which is five years of federal revenue. Uh, sorry, one, one and a half years of GDP, which is uh, more like five to seven years of federal revenue. That, that's a lot uh, of debt. And we roll it over. So we're fine. So long as markets are willing to lend us money at 1%, uh, we're fine. If the markets chose to lend us, decided that they're worried about us and want to charge us more money, then all of a sudden we're in deep trouble. That's kind of the mechanics of, of why it's unstable, why it's sort of like a run and you never know when it's coming. Um, this, so th this is a big debate in economics, which I'm going to try to survey in a fair way coming up. Uh, should we not worry about huge quantities of debt? Uh, should we worry about it? Has something changed in the economy that allows the U.S. government to have essentially unlimited quantities of debt and never have to pay it back? Oh, boy, am I worried about that. I'll just say uh, people point to World War II. Uh, the U.S. did pay off like one and a half years of GDP of World War II debt. Um, but um, we did that by strong supply-side growth, which we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, we did that with a very sober sub we, we paid for World War II, but we didn't keep on spending money like a drunken sailor. Uh, whereas now we have these past spending, but we're, we have no, we have a structural deficit and unreformed entitlements. So in, in the 1950s and 60s, we were running steady primary surpluses. There's no sign of primary surpluses. There's no sign of that very 
very strong growth in a much less regulated economy that we had in the 1950s. So the, the preconditions for replaying World War II, the paying off the World War II debt, are, are not there. The, the only thing we've got is markets willing to lend us money for now at very low rates. And the other thing I point out is that this has worked exactly twice in a thousand years of history, as far as I know. Uh, the U.S. after World War II and uh, the United Kingdom after uh, the Napoleonic Wars, both cases paid off an extraordinary amount of debt by strong supply-side growth and a very sober fiscal management in, in the decades of paying it off. Um, I can't think of another case. Uh, the United Kingdom after World War I and World War II was a fiscal basket case, despite the fact that it could print its own money. It was nothing more than inflations, devaluations, uh, and, and crisis after crisis until Maggie Thatcher came along. Uh, and of course, the other countries after World War II, especially the ones that lost it, uh, <laughs> were not did not do so well financially. Uh, sovereign debt for a thousand years has, has um, tended to end very badly. Uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff, uh, are, I think, documented that well. So I'm still uh, quite worried about the total amount of debt. Uh, the bottom line is, yes, it's a worry. Uh, don't but people say, Alan Blinder saying in the Wall Street Journal, oh, you know, interest rates will tell us when we're getting into trouble. No, this is like an earthquake. This is like a run. Uh, the mechanics of it are you never get any warning ahead of time. Uh, so you, you got to fix matters. You got to buy the insurance while, while, while you can. Uh, the one last thing is, boy, I wish the U.S. Treasury, um, the U.S. Treasury is like a house like you buying a house, they could either take the floating rate mortgage or they could take the fixed rate mortgage. Uh, they can either borrow short-term or borrow long-term. They've chosen to borrow very short-term. And like a household, that means if interest rates go up, they're in deep doo-doo. If they only finance the whole thing very long-term at 1% uh, interest rates, then we would be uh, immune from a debt crisis for a generation. Because if interest rates go up, they can say, well, no problem. We, we can still pay the old interest rates. So we could just, we could insure ourselves against a debt crisis for 30 years if we finance the whole thing long term. It would cost a little bit more, but you know, all insurance costs a little bit more. Uh, so those are some thoughts uh, coming up, and, and I'll leave that as, a, uh, I hope that's whetted appetite for some of our grumpy listeners for things to come. Uh, unfortunately, John, circumstances being what they are, I think we will have plenty of opportunities to discuss, to discuss this further in the future, an issue that is not going away. You've been listening to the Grumpy Economist podcast with John Cochran. You can read the Grumpy Economist blog at johnhcochran.blogspot.com. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For John Cochran, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.